0: Welcome to the AKC podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Hello, I'm Dr. Margaret Hampson, and I'm a research fellow in ancient Greek philosophy at Trinity College Dublin. And today I'm going to approach the topic of our lecture series on mental health from the perspective of ancient Greek philosophy. And I should probably begin with a small disclaimer, which is that it's probably something of an anachronism to say that the ancient Greeks had the same concept of mental health or mental illness that we do today. Though whether we have a single or unified concept of mental health or illness ourselves is a question that's worth asking. And I think that the various lectures in this series only go to show the variety of perspectives from which we might approach this question and the range of considerations we we might want to appeal to when answering it. But having made that disclaimer, so that it's not clear that the ancient Greeks Share our concept of of mental health or mental illness, it is nevertheless true to say that they were very much concerned with the study of the soul, the suke from which we get words like psychology, and in particular with the health of the soul. Now, how we should understand the nature of the soul or suke varies from thinker to thinker, but whether we are to think of this as something incorporeal and eternal or corporeal and mortal most greek thinkers would agree that the soul is first of all a principle of life so it's that in virtue of which all living creatures are alive it's also what makes us who we are it's it's responsible for our identity and importantly for our purposes it's also the locus of psychological phenomenon of of mental phenomena, uh, faculties, states, such as our, our faculty and our current beliefs, our desires, our emotions, pleasures, pains, and so on. So talk of the soul can often be translated into talk of the mind or of the mental. And not only that, but I think we can actually see many connections between the kinds of issues that the ancient Greeks were interested in and the kinds of things that we might wonder about ourselves when we think about the concepts of mental health or mental illness today. So they they and we might ask whether there are good and bad kinds of desires and whether there are kinds of desires that are good or bad for us to have. We might wonder what kind of emotional dispositions we should try to inculcate, whether certain sorts of emotions are make us unhappy, for example, whether there are some that we should try to avoid. And we might also wonder whether there are certain sorts of beliefs, particularly false beliefs, or the fixating on certain sorts of thoughts that might contribute to a sense of anxiety and disrupt our well-being. But of course, we can't talk about the whole of Greek philosophy today. So I'm going to limit myself to one thinker, one very prominent thinker. Plato, and just to one work of his, one very famous work, The Republic. Because here we have a famous picture of what a healthy soul looks like, where the appeal to the concept of health is explicit. But what I think is especially interesting is that we also have a characterization of an unhealthy soul in the form of the tyrannical character, the tyrant. And it strikes me that we can learn just as much about the notion of mental health by looking at the pathological case, the the unhealthy case, the case where something's gone wrong, as we can when looking at the case of where everything goes well. So I'm going to begin by giving a, a brief overview of Plato's account of the healthy soul in Republic Book Four. And having done so, I then want to turn to the tyrannical character and to think about what's gone wrong here and why, as the interlocutors of the Republic agree, this character is the most wretched, the most miserable. And in looking at this character, I want to point to a feature of, of this character type that doesn't get an awful lot of attention in the scholarly literature. And this is something that I'm interested in as part of my own ongoing research. And this feature has to do with his interpersonal relations and the way in which he treats others and his attitude towards other people. Because it strikes me that this is a major part of what makes this such an unhealthy and miserable type of character. And I think that this is something we can relate to again today. So the thought that issues to do with mental health and mental illness are intimately bound up with issues to do with the way we relate to and interact with other people. So we tend to think that mental ill health can negatively impact our relationships with other people. But we also think that the kinds of relationships we foster and develop can themselves be a sign of something having gone wrong or something going wrong and that these themselves can also contribute to our mental health and our sense of well-being. So this is the question I want to ask with regard to the tyrant, though not necessarily one to which I will give a definitive answer. As I said, this is something I'm thinking about in an ongoing way. But what I want to think about and what I want to ask you to think about is this, does the tyrant have problematic interpersonal relationships because he has bad desires say or is there something more complicated going on and are these problematic relationships themselves a sign of something having gone quite fundamentally wrong and what then is this meant to reveal so let's begin with plato's account of the healthy soul and it will be helpful here to have a little bit of background on the project of the republic So the question around which the discussion of Plato's Republic is organized is the question, what is justice? And the further challenge that is posed to the character of Socrates in the Republic is why be just when we can be unjust? And what he's asked to show specifically is why justice is something good in and of itself and not just because of its consequences. Because it seems pretty clear why being unjust will have bad consequences. So if we cheat our business partners, if we don't pay our taxes, we'll be punished if we're found out. People won't trust us. But what if nobody ever found out? So what happens if our cheating and our tax returns never come to light? So then why be just if we could get away with being unjust? So you might be thinking that this sounds like an ethical question or or a topic for political philosophy and that it doesn't have much to do with the topic of mental health and of course it is a topic for ethics it is a topic for political philosophy why be just why be just when we could get away with being unjust but we're not going to be concerned with the ethical dimension of this question right now but rather with the intriguing answer that socrates gives Because what Socrates offers is, in fact, a radical revision of the concept of justice, where he replaces the notions of of giving what you owe or these perhaps to us more archaic notions of helping friends and harming enemies with an account of justice, according to which this doesn't primarily consist in certain sorts of actions, but is rather a state of the soul justice is a state of our soul. It's the harmonious and, we're told, healthy state of our soul. So what does this mean? Well, Plato has Socrates argue that there are three parts to our soul. So first of all, we have a rational part, and this, surprisingly, possesses reason. It calculates It's also the seat of our beliefs, of knowledge. And it also loves learning and is the seat of other sorts of desires that have their source in reason. So, for example, when I'm I'm thirsty, I desire a drink. But if I'm ill and and a doctor tells me that a certain drink will be poisonous to me, then I have a rational aversion to drinking that drink. Okay, so although although I might be thirsty and I might have what I'll describe in a second an appetitive desire for some drink, if I know that it will be poisonous to me, I also have an aversion. I desire not to drink the poisonous drink because my reason tells me so. And second, we have a spirited part. So this part is concerned with the notions of of honor, revenge, with what is noble and what is shameful. And it's also the seat of certain emotions such as anger and finally we have an appetitive part and this part is wholly non-rational it doesn't possess reason at all it's the seat of our bodily desires so it desires for food to drink sex and it also loves money as a means to satisfying these sorts of desires so I've just described the, the nature of these, these parts, three parts of the soul. But Socrates also thinks that each part has a proper function. Okay? So it has a certain job to do. And the role of reason is, again, surprisingly, to reason. Its job is to deliberate about what is best for the soul as a whole and to make decisions on behalf of the soul as a whole. So its role then is to, to rule, or perhaps more, to govern the soul. So it, it, it works out what is best for the soul as a whole, and it makes de- decisions on its behalf. It's that sense of government. And spirit is said to be the natural ally of reason, and its role is to support reason in its judgments. And the role of appetite, this is harder to pin down, perhaps because it's it's expressed negatively. So the point is that appetite mustn't become overly large. So it mustn't come to dominate our soul. Rather, it should be quiet and gentle and our appetites should accord with what reason directs and what spirit supports. So maybe an example will be helpful um, and we'll take a, a contemporary one. So, my reason tells me that wearing a face mask helps to reduce the transmission of coronavirus, okay? So I I have a rational desire to, to wear a mask. And my spirit tells me that it's noble to do so, or perhaps also that it would be shameful not to do so, and be shameful to endanger other people. And now perhaps it's, it's not as comfortable to wear a face covering as, as to, be, to be free of one, but I mustn't let my, my desire for bodily comfort, my, my desire, my bodily desire not to wear a mask, overcome my rational desire to wear one and to reduce the spread of transmission and my spirited desire not to do something shameful and to endanger other people. So my, my appet- appetitive desire must be quiet and mustn't dominate my soul. So prior to the discussion of the soul, Socrates and his interlocutors were investigating what a just city looks like, because they thought that in looking at what justice in a city looks like on this kind of large scale, they'd be able to identify what justice in a soul and on the smaller scale looks like. And in the city, they had also identified three main groups and corresponding functions. So they identified a group of wise people whose role they thought it is to deliberate and again, make decisions about what's best for the city as a whole on behalf of the city. So their role was to govern, not to rule for their own sake, but to govern and to rule for the city as a whole for what's best and do what's best for the city. And they'd also identified a a brave warrior class, whose job it is to support the rulers of the city and to protect the city from outside attack. And finally, they had identified a skilled class of producers whose task was to provide goods and to provide nurture for the city as a whole. And the interlocutors agreed that in a just city, what it is for a city to be just is for each of these classes to do their proper job okay so to do the job that they're best at and that they're best suited to and so they agreed that if justice in a city involves each part each group doing its proper job its proper function and and the city being arranged in a certain sort of way so with with reason the wise people ruling, brave people supporting this rule, and producers nurturing the city. Then they agreed that so too in the soul, justice in the soul must consist in each part of the soul doing its proper function and being arranged in a certain sort of way. And this proper functioning, this proper arrangement of the soul, is likened to health. And so, Plato writes this, he says that justice isn't concerned with someone's doing his own externally, but with what is inside him, with what is truly himself and his own. One who is just does not allow any part of himself to do the work of another part or allow the various classes within him to meddle with each other. He regulates well what is really his own and he rules himself he puts himself in order, is his own friend, and harmonises the three parts of himself. He binds together those parts and any others that may be in between, and from having been many things, he becomes entirely one, moderate and harmonious. Only then does he act. And they specifically draw the analogy with health at this point. So, Socrates explains the concept of bodily health in terms of natural relations of of control, of ruling, um, of a balance, perhaps. And so he says that to produce health is to establish the components of the body in a natural relation of control and being controlled one by another, while to produce disease is to produce a relation of ruling and being ruled, which is contrary to nature. So it's it's clear that the notion of the natural uh, and a natural order is, is essential to this notion of bodily health. And so he says that, so then to produce justice is to establish the parts of the soul in a natural relation of control, one by another, while to produce injustice is to establish a relation of ruling and being ruled contrary to nature, so virtue it seems then, is a kind of health, fine condition, and well-being of the soul, while vice is disease, shameful condition, and weakness. So we can see here that virtue, justice, isn't merely analogous to bodily health, but is itself described as a kind of health. So just as in the body, there can be a natural kind of order, Balance of orders of ruling and being ruled, so too, it seems, in the soul, there is a natural order of ruling and being ruled. And so, health isn't just a concept that's restricted to the body, but is one that can equally apply to our soul and to our psychology. Before moving on, it's worth pointing out that here we have the answer to the question that's posed in the Republic why why is justice good in and of itself and the answer is that it's good in and of itself because justice just is the health of the soul so just as it's good in and of itself uh, and not just because of its consequences to have a healthy body uh, of course uh to have a healthy body does have good consequences um i can do all sorts of things when i'm healthy but that's not the only reason that we think that health is a good thing. We, we think that he- it just is good to be healthy. And likewise, being ill I it's it has bad consequences. Um, it can be incredibly limiting. but also we think that being ill just is a bad thing that it, it's it's miserable to be ill. And likewise, in the case of the soul. To have a healthy soul will enable an agent to to do all sorts of things. It will have good consequences, but it's also good in and of itself. It's good to have a healthy soul. It's bad to have an unhealthy soul. So there we have the account of the just soul, the healthy soul, and why it's good to have a healthy soul. But what of the unjust soul, the unhealthy soul? Well, in order to arrive at a full judgment about what kind of life we should live and which is the happiest life and which is the most miserable life, the characters of the Republic agree that they should not only look at the good, the healthy case, but they should also look at the worst case, the most unhealthy and unhealthy case in order to compare the two and to come to a final conclusion about which life is most happy and worth living and which is most miserable. And the character that's in the opposite condition to the just person is the tyrannical character whose soul is in the most diseased condition. And I should say that the tyrannical character isn't necessarily a political tyrant. So they're talking about a certain character type, a certain type of soul that's in a certain condition and a certain kind of order, or as we'll see, a certain kind of disorder. But the interlocutors do agree that the most miserable character is in fact when someone with a tyrannical soul when someone's soul is in a certain condition has the misfortune to become an actual political tyrant when they have the misfortune to gain power and so i've put a picture here of napoleon um often portrayed as one of history's most tyrannical figures and here he is uh not simply looking tyrannical, but looking very slobbish as well. And apparently this picture is meant to depict the moments when he realizes the wheel of fortune has changed and his deeds have caught up with him. But of course, if there are other political figures that you think fit the description that's going to follow, then I invite you to mentally fill in this picture with whomever else you wish. So prior to the account of the tyrannical character, the interlocutors of the Republic offer a classification of types of desires. Specifically, these are types of appetitive desire, those desires that belong to our our appetitive part of the soul and are concerned with bodily pleasures. And they distinguish between necessary appetites and unnecessary appetites. So unnecessary appetites are appetites such as uh, hunger and the desire for food when we're hungry or our desire for drink when we're thirsty. So these aren't desires for particular kinds of food, particular kinds of drink, they're just desires for food simpliciter, for drink simpliciter, that are felt when we experience a certain lack. And they're necessary, it would seem, because we need them in order to be alive, we need to satisfy them to continue living. Unnecessary desires, however, are those for particular kinds of food and particular kinds of drink. So my desire for a certain sort of fizzy drink, my desire for a glass of red wine, my desire for a particular type of sandwich. And these it seems aren't necessary in order to stay alive. We could eliminate these desires and we wouldn't we wouldn't cease to, to live. But of the unnecessary appetites, at the beginning of the account of the tyrannical character, we're also introduced to a further distinction. And this is between lawful and lawless unnecessary appetites. So it seems that my desire for a particular kind of sandwich isn't harmful in and of itself, although we'll see that indulging certain sorts of appetites can lead to certain sorts of harm, perhaps, and psychological harm. But the interlocutors identify another set of desires that seem to be completely outside the law. And these are desires for things like incest, for murder, and it says for any sort of food. And I I take it that any sort of food is meant to include human flesh. So these are really shocking desires. And they say that, interestingly, these sorts of desires are actually present in everyone, although perhaps in some godlike people, they've been entirely eliminated. But these are the type of desires that are usually only awakened in sleep when we dream. And the thought is that these are the type of desires that we have when our repetitive soul is wholly unchecked by reason and by the law. So it's 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 interesting to reflect whether whether we we do have these sorts of desires you know, when we're sleeping. I, I I I don't know if you have desires for incest and murder. Uh, perhaps though there is some truth to the thought that in in sleep we we can experience certain we have certain dreams and desires where where we do things that we wouldn't dream of doing. If you excuse the pun. Um, when when we're awake and when we're checked by reason and the law. So the thought is that these, these are the types of desires that the appetitive part of the soul can have when it's wholly unchecked by reason, when reason is slumbering in this case. So the account of the tyrannical character begins As with the accounts of other degenerative character states in the republic with an account of his genesis and this is from his genesis from the person with a democratic constitution whose soul is ruled by their unnecessary but lawful appetites and in the first instance we're told that the tyrannical character is pulled towards lawlessness by those calling it freedom so we have this image of some sort of external influence And people saying to this character, look, you know, this isn't breaking the law. This is just being free of the constraints of the law. And we're told in this this highly elaborate figurative language how these tyrant makers then plant a certain erotic desire, eros, in the soul of the tyrant to be leader of his appetites and his idle desires. it looks like these are the lawless desires that we've discussed previously. And there's there's a question, there's a question in literature on the tyrant as to how we should understand the nature of this eros that's implanted in the tyrant's soul. So whether this is meant to be a specifically sexual form of desire or, or something more general. And for our purposes, I'm going to suggest that we're to think of this as a very intense form of desire that's clearly intimately connected with bodily pleasures. And it's a kind of desire, it seems, that gives a certain tunnel vision to a subject. So we're told then that Eros adopts madness, Mania, as its bodyguard, and it becomes frenzied. So we have this image of this this very strong desire, this strong desire connected with bodily pleasures, becoming, becoming mad and getting this real sting to it. And we're told that the other desires uh, in the tyrant's soul, these idol desires, nurture this, this one dominant desire. And in the end, this Eros throws out any beliefs or desires from the soul of the tyrant that might have been good or have had some sense of shame. And it thus purges him of all moderation. So we have an image here of of a particular type of desire and its relationship perhaps with other, other types of bodily desires, and of this coming to dominate someone's soul in a very intense way. And in what follows, we're, we're told of the kind of life that someone with this kind of soul leads, okay? So the tyrant, we're told, goes in for feasts, for luxuries, girlfriends, and all that sort of thing. So this, this suggests that we're not talking about a, a specifically sexual desire, but something much more generally concerned with our appetites, but clearly uh, unnecessary appetites here, feasts, luxuries. Okay. And we're told that his, these desires need many things to satisfy them. And not only that, but they're such as to grow day and night. So he has these the desires that are growing, and he needs more and more to satisfy them. And so soon his income is spent, and then his capital, his savings. And so at this point, the tyrant looks around to see who possesses anything he can take by deceit or by force. Okay. So first of all, he steals from his parents we're going to return to this thought shortly because I think this is meant to be very shocking. And then we're told how he breaks into houses and he robs temples. So he, he violates all of these social norms. And we're told that Eros, this desire lives in complete anarchy in his soul as, as, his, as the sole ruler of his soul. And it drives him to dare anything that will provide sustenance for itself and for its mob, these other appetitive desires around him. So the interlocutors realise that, far from being free, the tyrant is really enslaved. He's completely enslaved to his appetites and his eros, and has to do everything that they direct him to do, and leads this frenzied life. Whereas reason in the just person ruled the soul for the sake of the whole soul, and did what's best for the soul as a whole, the tyrant's whole soul is furthest from doing what it wants. And we're told that his life is full of disorder and regret. So I hope that the the comparison with the just person is, is really clear. So they were ruled by their reason, which acted for the sake of the soul as a whole. Spirit was the ally to reason and their appetites were quiet. And remember, we were told that this person regulates well what is really his own, and he rules himself. And he puts himself in order, is his own friend, and harmonizes the three parts of his self. Whereas the tyrant is completely ruled by one small part of himself that doesn't act for the sake of the whole. And he leads this entirely slavish life. So it looks like what we're being presented with is an account of the nature of certain sorts of desires and what happens when our soul comes to be ruled by these and it seems that plato has identified a set of desires that have the following characteristics so these desires it seems are insatiable they they can't be satisfied so whereas our when we're hungry, we can satisfy that desire by eating. Now, of course, hunger returns because the kind of beings that we are, but we can be satisfied by eating. Whereas these unnecessary, and it seems lawless desires are such that they can't be satisfied. And not only that, but they're the kind of desires that increase when we try to satisfy them. So I was trying to think of examples and I thought perhaps consumer culture might be an appropriate one. So I take it that advertising companies foster desires in us that are unnecessary, desires for things that I don't need. And perhaps I think that just by buying this one thing, this, this one item in a sale, then I'm going to satisfy that craving that I have. But of course, when I pursue these desires, All that happens is that they grow. They're they're not satisfied. They don't diminish. They don't go away. They, They increase the more that I try to satisfy them. And perhaps it seems the only way of really eliminating them is not to act on them, not to try to satisfy them. And gradually they might go away. And so this seems to be the case with the kind of desires that Plato has identified here as well. And it also seems to be the case that this type of character, they pursue these desires with a kind of tunnel vision. So they pursue them at the expense of all other things. And a number of scholars have uh, quite reasonably, I suppose, drawn an analogy, seen an analogy between the tyrant and the case of addiction, a, a drug addict with an unmanaged addiction so they point to the way that the tyrant is driven to greater and greater lengths to satisfy these ever-growing these insatiable desires for bodily pleasure in the way that we might think that an addict might be driven to greater and greater lengths to find the resources to satisfy these cravings that ultimately can't be satisfied and of course it'll be interesting to reflect on how much To what extent this picture matches up or not with the picture that professor marsden painted in his picture on addiction and mental health but it it seems the the consensus is that we will be presented here with an account of what certain sorts of desires look like what happens when our souls are dominated by our certain sorts of desires when we live a life that pursues these at the expense of all other things And it seems that the picture that we get is one that's very unhealthy. It's not a position that we, it's not a life that we'd want to lead. It's a life that looks slavish, where we're constantly frenzied. Now, I don't want to deny that what we have here, at least, is an account of what certain sorts of desires are like, and what it is for our psychology, our souls, to be dominated by certain sorts of desires though how closely we should think that this character does resemble an addict, say, uh, is an issue I want to push in just a moment. But certainly I think we have a very compelling picture here that Plato's painted, painted, and it's hard to deny that the tyrant's condition is an unhealthy one and that it's anything but miserable. But I think that in the picture we've described so far, We've overlooked a really important aspect of this character, and this is something that I'm pursuing in my current research, so I'm asking you at this point to think about this here with me. And this has to do with his relations with other people. So when the interlocutors sum up the account of the tyrannical character, they say that, and we will also attribute to this man what we mentioned before, namely that he is necessarily envious untrustworthy, unjust, friendless, impious, host and nurse to every kind of vice and that his ruling makes him even more so. And because of these, he is extremely unfortunate and goes on to make those near him like himself. And I think it's striking that all of these qualities mentioned here have to do with our relations with other people. So being en- envious of other people, we're untrustworthy to others. We might think that piety and impiety have to do with our relationship with God, the gods, um, though it's still a relationship that concerns others. And I think that one of the most striking characteristics here is the claim that he's necessarily friendless, and that this is one of the reasons that he's most unfortunate. So. Insofar as this aspect of the tyrannical character is examined, um, receives attention in the literature on the tyrant, there's a tendency to see this as uh, a consequence of his having bad desires. So in the picture of sketch so far it looks as though he's so consumed by in the pursuit of his own appetitive desires and, and he needs more and more to To satisfy these, he needs to take more and more resources, and there are finite physical resources, that he's forced to steal from other people, he's forced to engage in increasingly antisocial behaviours. And because of this, we might think he ends up alienating people. He finds himself friendless. He steals, he's untrustworthy, no one would want to be friends with the tyrant. And I think, of course, it's true who would want to be friends with this character. But I think that the details of the tyrant's life suggest that something more is going on and something more fundamental has gone wrong. And that his status as friendless isn't merely a consequence of his having bad desires, but is actually an essential feature of his character. So I just want to take us through a few passages that I think are, again, really striking passages and suggest that something much more fundamental has gone wrong. So first of all, remember that when the tyrant was pursuing his feasts and luxuries and ran out of money, and he turned to see if there was anyone from whom he could take anything by deceit or force. And on the analogy with addiction, we might think that that behavior was compelled that the tyrant wouldn't want to steal from people, especially those close to him, but that the nature of his desires forced him to do this. But in fact, Plato says that the tyrant thinks he deserves to have more than his mother and father. And it's not clear to me that this characterization sits happily with the image that we have of an addict. And again, Socrates describes when the tyrant steals from his mother and father and if they try to resist him he says that the tyrant will do this but good god idamantus do you think he'd sacrifice his long-loved and irreplaceable mother for a recently acquired girlfriend whom he can do without or that he for the sake of a newfound and replaceable boyfriend in the bloom of youth he'd strike his aged and irreplaceable father his oldest friend or that he'd make his parents the slaves of these others if he brought them under his roof. And we have a very similar image, uh, just a few pages later, where he says that the tyrant turns then on his country, on his motherland. So we have the same image of kind of parental relations. So just as he chastised his mother and father, he'll now chastise his fatherland if he can by bringing in new friends And making his fatherland and his dear old motherland their slaves and keeping them that way for this is surely the end at which such a man's desires are directed and it seems that this image of enslaving one's parents goes is such a violation of of the norms of friendship and of family relations that this goes much much further than the the desperate behavior that we might attribute to an addict say And in fact, when the interlocutors sum up the account of the tyrannical character, they say this. The now in private life, before a tyrannical man attains power, isn't he this sort of person? One who associates primarily with flatterers who are ready to obey him in everything. Or if he happens to need anything from other people, isn't he willing to fawn on them and make every gesture of friendship, as if he were dealing with his own family. But once he gets what he wants, don't they become strangers again? And I find this um, one of the most chilling passages in the account of the tyrannical character. Because it's not simply the case that he's he's so single-minded in his pursuit of his desires, that he's he's unaware of these social norms. The tyrant clearly is aware of how to make gestures of friendship and he's clearly aware of how one should treat one's family and able to make those kinds of gestures to people. But he only does so when there's something that he needs and when he's got what he needs, people become strangers to him again. So again, it's 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 hard not to make the parallels with certain politicians who make great promises to parts of the electorate uh, before an election and saying that they're their friend, they'll look out for their interests. And of course, when when these people win their elections, the electorate becomes becomes strangers to them again. And they they finish by saying, so someone with a tyrannical nature lives his whole life without being friends with anyone, always a master to one man or a slave to another, never getting a taste of either true friendship or freedom. So in these passages, as i said, it looks like we have a real violation of the norms, the very norms of friendship and other types of relationships. We see the tyrant is willing to betray friends. He has this inability to sustain relationships. He replaces an old friend with a new friend. And he also seems to lack the ability to to care for people and to reciprocate in the way that we think is a constitutive norm of friendship. And he's clearly concerned only with his own needs and not those of other people. There's no consideration of acting for the sake of another. And what I want to suggest is that what we see in these passages is that the tyrant's status as friendless is in fact an essential feature of his character. So it's not simply that he lacks friends, other people don't want to be friends with him, but that he is incapable of being a friend himself. And we're told, recall that he is this sort of person, that someone with a tyrannical nature goes his whole life without being friends with anyone. And this, I think, looks like an essential rather than merely consequential feature of this character. And it seems like his friendlessness, his inability to respect the norms of friendship, to sustain relationships is part of his pathology. So I'm not qualified myself, I don't think, to to really speak to contemporary psychopathologies But it looks to me as if we have something here that looks much more like a narcissistic character type than an analogy with uh, addiction, say. In any case, I think that what Plato is alerting us to is the importance of interpersonal relations and the deep connection between these these interpersonal relations and our psychological health. So it seems that part of having a healthy soul, a healthy psychology, is having the right sorts of relations with other people, seeing ourselves as related to other people in the right sort of way. And the image of someone who surrounds himself only with flatterers, people who are ready to obey him and everything, someone who's only interested in others insofar as they cater to his own needs, and has no interest in, and attaches no value to other people and to friendships. It looks like this is itself a form of pathology, and that this existence is ultimately not one that any of us would choose. So the tyrant is friendless, and because of this, he's extremely unfortunate. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.